Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And welcome into the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes. On today's episode, as the flood of refugees head towards the core, Jason Solo is given a vision of the galaxy and the Jedi teetering on the edge. Will Jason's choice leave him caught between light and darkness? We'll find out in today's book, Balance Point, by Kathy Tires book number six in the New Jedi Order series. And joining me to talk about the book today is my buddy, Scott Thompson. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you very much. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, I'm Scott, as Aaron said. If you're in the Song of Ice and Fire fandom, you may know me as Scad. I am just really looking forward to diving into this book. Well, before we get into the book, tell the listeners a little about yourself and give us your Star Wars story. Sure. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a 40-ish father of two. Uh, I run a different podcast in the Song of Ice and Fire fandom called Davos Fingers uh, with my buddy Matt. Uh, my Star Wars story, <clears throat> I, I always kind of consider it's like a lot of other people's Star Wars stories. I just grew up watching the movies. We had all three of the originals recorded from TV onto VHS. Uh, that was definitely how it started for me. But I wasn't super into them, really, until my later teen years. Uh, when I'm, you know, I kind of embraced all of my nerdiness further with, you know, fantasy novels and things like that. I remember there was like a turning point I kind of recall where we had company visiting in from Colorado, um, and they offered me tickets to go to an NCAA opening round game for for March Madness, and I eschewed them to go to the re-release of the Star Wars films. That was it was like what ninety seven or ninety eight when they re-released them into theaters for a time. Yeah, the ninety seven special editions. Yes, correct. The special editions with Han stepping on Jabba and Greedo shooting first and all that good stuff. That was probably, though, when I realized kind of how big a fan I was, and it just grew from there, really. You're pretty new to Star Wars Legends, correct? This is the first time you're reading the New Jedi Order series. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I've read quite a bit of the new canon stuff, 10 or 12 books, maybe, but my Legends experience consists before this read uh of of uh new jedi order uh consisted of trace at bakura which is kind of the first book that happens right after jedi ends like days after jedi ends uh but that was probably a decade ago i read that and then aaron you gifted me tatooine ghost a couple years ago and i made it about two-thirds of the way through before i set it aside for the expanse which you know in fairness i also haven't finished so uh i start a lot of things and don't finish them book wise uh, I do plan on getting through it. It hit a little slow patch for me, so I stopped. But yeah, so first time with the new Jedi Order series for sure. And really other than a toe dip and some frigid waters, this is, you know, my first experience in the, the Legends stuff, period. So I'm well, excited. Well, we'll discuss this particular point 
uh, book, Balance Point, a little later, but generally, up until now, how are you feeling about the series? I'm enjoying it a lot. It's it's a lot of reading. Uh, you know, I think the experience we have with the group of us reading together is kind of motivating. It's a galvanizing factor in it. But, um, you know, I've never, I, I'm a pretty good, pretty big reader, but I've never read this much in my life before. You know, we're reading, you know, one and a half books a month or so, um, you know, that we're doing here. It's a good schedule to keep, but I'm really enjoying it. It's a nice balance of action, plot, politics, some character development in there. And reading them so close together is also helpful because we're, we're keeping it pretty tight in my mind, right? So that's good. I'm enjoying it a lot. Well, it's great to have you in our little New Jedi Order crew. And I'm really excited to get into today's book. But before that, let's take some listener questions. We have two questions today. The first one comes from Jeremiah Jimenez, who wrote a very nice email, but we had to edit it down a little bit for the podcast. Scott, will you please read Jeremiah's email? Uh, I have recently discovered from, oh, sorry, Jeremiah says, I have recently discovered the Star Wars Legends Lounge podcast and have a book suggestion. My favorite series is the Republic Commando series by Karen Travis. With the rise in popularity of the Mandalorians and Star Wars pop culture, with shows like The Mandalorian and Book of Boba Fett, this would provide more context for newer listeners that want more Mandalorian content but don't know where to start. For Bad Batch fans, the book even introduces the Nulls, which I believe the Bad Batch are kind of inspired by as the Nulls did not obey orders like regular clone troopers. I'm also a massive Old Republic fan from the Night of the Old Republic games, and I'm a self-proclaimed Revenite. My question is, what is your personal Mount Rushmore of Star Wars characters, either canon or legends? My list, Reven, Darth Bane, Jango Fett, and Darth Maul. Honorable mentions for Marco Ragnos, Chewbacca, General Grievous, and Shakti. Thank you very much for the email, Jeremiah, and uh, thanks for the very kind words. Good news for you and for other fans of the Republic Commando series. Uh, those books are on the schedule for next year, 2024. So you won't have long to wait to hear my thoughts on Omega Squad. Now, to answer Jeremiah's question, who is on my Mount Rushmore of Star Wars characters? Well, the first three are easy. My favorite characters of all time, Vader, Luke, and Leia. The familial dynamic has always been my favorite part of the Star Wars story. And it probably always will be. It's the fourth character that changes for me from time to time, depending on how I feel. R2-D2, Ahsoka Tano, Jaina Solo, Finn, Rex, Fives, Harrison Dula, Jin Erso, Kino Loy, my boy Nubs. But for the purpose of your question, Jeremiah, I'll say R2. Make R2 the Teddy Roosevelt head on the Mount Rushmore. How about you, Scott? Oh, man. On the spot. You know, to begin with, I'm not even sure I can name all the presidents on Mount Rushmore. So let's start there. But I know who I'd put up there if I could, you know, carve the rock clean. I'd put Leia on there. She's my favorite character uh, <clears throat> by a bit. Ahsoka is my second favorite character. I really like Anakin, uh, and I did use Anakin and not Vader uh, because that's a whole journey. Uh, and I chose Tarkin, actually. Uh, I read Tarkin's canon book, uh, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, I liked what they did with him in uh, in Clone Wars, and so uh, I'm going with Tarkin, and I'm going to throw a little honorable mention Jason's way. I've really enjoyed Jason Solo. We will get into that more later, I'm sure. That we will. Thank you very much for the email, Jeremiah. Today's second email comes from Buddy, who says, I'm a longtime listener and saw your tweet about becoming forklift certified. 
and it made me wonder which Star Wars character do you think would be forklift certified? Thinking about Chewbacca being a union certified forklift operator is so funny to me because I think Chewie would wear the proper PPE despite not being able to fit in the forklift, while Han would refuse to wear the PPE or even get certified, but he'd still try to operate the forklift to get the union benefits. From your fellow forklift certified operator, Buddy. Great question, Buddy. As soon as I read it, the first name that popped in my head was Queel from the first season of The Mandalorian. You know how much pride the Ugnaughts put into their work. So Queel, definitely a forklift operator. The other two I came up with are Brasso, Cassian Andor's best friend from Andor, and let's throw in Zeb from Rebels. Scott, who do you think would be forklift certified in the galaxy far, far away? First of all, props for Brasso. Uh, he's one of the truly great characters from Andor, which, geez, guys, if you're listening to this podcast and haven't watched Andor, please do it. It's uh, blasphemy to say I know, but it's maybe my favorite Star Wars content of any kind, including the OG trilogy. So, Is there a better bro in the Star Wars galaxy than Brasso? I don't think so. Bro is even in the name, if you take out a few letters. Take out a few dangerous letters. Bro is in there. Uh, anyway, I'm going with Lobot. So... I know he may have a whole Legends history that might not jive with forklift certification course time frame, but in his younger years after arriving at Cloud City, I could see him learning it, then later getting nice, peaceful solace by just running forklifts through his brain for an afternoon and giving some shipping tech the afternoon off, right? Just kind of sitting back and running some forklift ops. That's a, that's a great answer. Lobot. Thank you. You know, one, another one just popped into my head just now, and it was because Scott and I were chatting a little bit about the Obi-Wan series before we started recording here. I think most likely in the Star Wars universe, they'd use droids to run the forklifts so that they didn't have to pay the union wages. And let's face it, my boy Ned B from the Obi-Wan series would probably be a forklift operator. This is true. This is this is the giant, big, big robot guy. Yeah, the big yellow guy. Yeah, that yeah. Had yeah, the yeah. hammer that I thought he was going to use to smash in some stormtrooper heads, but he never did get to swing it. He never did. Yeah, I thought he was going to do the same, and uh, that's a good choice. He, you know, who needs the forks? Just use those arms, buddy. Yeah. Thank you for the email, buddy. Now, listener, if you have a question for the show, like Jeremiah and Buddy. You can send me an email at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send me a tweet at legendslounge1. And if you'd like to get your voice on the show, you can record an audio question and email it in. Just please help me out and record it in MP3 or MP4 audio format. Now it's time for today's book, Balance Point by Kathy Tires. Are you ready, Scott? Since brevity is the soul of wit and tediousness, the limbs and outward flourishes, I will be brief. Yes, I am ready. Great. Grab yourself a drink and let's head in to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. The story begins above the planet Kalarba. Jaina Sola and Rogue Squadron cover an exodus of citizens from the doomed planet. Soon to meet the same fate as Cerndepal its own moon crashing into it. The rogues battle dozens of Yuzon Vong coral skippers when Jaina is caught in the explosion of a New Republic assault cruiser. The blast throws Jaina against her instrument panel. She reaches out with the force, grasping for anything. But everything goes white, 
and Jaina loses consciousness. On the planet Duro, Jason Solo feels his twin sister's pain through the Force. He reaches out to locate her, but receives a vision of Luke being overrun by the Yuzhan Vong, and Jason powerless to stop it. Jason believes the New Republic is at a balance point in the fight against the Vong, but one misstep could plunge the galaxy into darkness. Combined with Jason's already complex feelings about withdrawing from the Force, the vision alarms him. Can Jason prevent disaster? By trying, will he cause it? Is his sister still alive? Jason tells his father about Jaina, and they contact Rogue Squadron. Thankfully, she survived the explosion and was transported to a medical facility. Han asks if Leia has been contacted about their daughter, but Coruscant doesn't know where Leia is. Turns out she's right under their noses working on Duro, trying to make the environmentally devastated world habitable for the refugees from the Outer Rim. Luke, Mara, and Anakin learn of a potential Yuzon Vong spy on Coruscant and plan to capture the agent for questioning. Mara and Anakin identify the Vong disguised by an Uglith masker and working in a cafe. They follow, but the spy makes Anakin, and they're forced to fight. Anakin tries to stun the Vong, but it doesn't work. Mara uses the pommel of her lightsaber to knock out the warrior and apprehend her. As a cleanup crew comes around to take the Vong into custody, she wakes up, unsheaths the claws from her wrists, and then cuts her bindings, slashing her own throat, and dying before Mara can learn any information. Jaina is turned over to Han and Jason on Duro while she recovers from her injuries, and she is not happy about it. Jason tells his twin about his vision and how he's pulled back his use of the Force. Jason's conflicted. He second-guesses every choice he makes. Meanwhile, Yuzhan Vong executor Naminor is on Duro and discovers that Leia is overseeing the planet's rejuvenation efforts. Disguised as a biological scientist named Kriar, Naminor releases an infestation of bioengineered insects to eat through the refugee domes and expose them to Duro's poisoned atmosphere. On Coruscant, Jedi Tracina Lobi alerts Luke that her apprentice Thrini Vey has gone missing while looking into missing shipments of humanitarian aid to Duro. Luke, Mara, and Anakin decide to investigate when Mara gets the most surprising news. She's pregnant. Luke asks Mara if she's sure. Maybe her mysterious illness has returned. No, Mara says. This is different. She's growing a child, one she will fiercely protect. Back on Duro, Naminor's bugs eat through the domed ceiling of Zone 32. Jason is awakened to the danger, alerts his sister, and finds the moth-like creatures before they finish their work. Han orders an immediate evacuation to Gateway, the main refugee encampment. When they arrive, the Solars are stunned to find Leia. The Zone 32 refugees are sent through decontamination at Gateway, having all their hair and fur shaved off. In a show of solidarity, Leia removes her decon suit, exposing herself to possible infestation. The former Princess of Alderaan and New Republic Chief of State shaves off her hair and starts the complicated steps to heal her family. Luke, Mara, and Anakin arrive at Duro to investigate Thrinivay's disappearance and go undercover through the orbital camp city Baburo. They learn a group of Duros may be conspiring with the Peace Brigade to steal supplies from the refugees 
and fly the city away if the Vong attack. Disguised as a pair of Kubas, Luke and Anakin meet with Durgard Brarun, the head of Corduro shipping, to ask for supplies when Jason arrives. Jason negotiates for Corduro to send supplies down to the planet for a price of 2% of future profits. Brarun doesn't agree, but the negotiation has begun. Jason gets Brarun talking before he's taken to a holding room for further discussion. But Luke has learned what he needed to, that there may be treachery in the New Republic Advisory Council, Selkor, or maybe both, and that Baburu is likely hoarding supplies, with plans to abandon Doro to the Yuzon Vong. While Luke and Anakin are out, Mara heads down to Gateway. She meets with Leia and asks to speak with Dr. Kriar. Leia admits she's never met Kriar, but she says the scientist has solved many problems for Gateway. Mara and Jaina find Dr. Kriar in one of the underground mining tunnels and realize something isn't right. The scientist doesn't register in the Force. While Mara talks with the scientist, Jaina reaches out with the Force, probing for a disguise. She presses a spot along his nose, and the Ooglith Masker quickly retracts. It's Naminor. Mara and Jaina begin to chase the Executor, but he springs a trap, and the ceiling starts to crumble. Mara uses the Force to protect Jaina and herself. She projects a bubble to move the fallen rocks around herself and Jaina, leading them to safety. Jason remains in the holding room when Luke sneaks in to talk with his nephew. Jason tells his master about his vision of a galaxy balancing on the edge and his fear of misusing the Force. Luke is understanding, but not agreeable. He says Jason must find his own path and commit to it. If Jason can't use the Force in full faith, though, he shouldn't use it at all. Luke also warns Jason that sacrificing his own gifts to show others his truth is its own sort of pride, like the Vong Preach. Heavy stuff. Jason decides to follow his inclination to stop any use of the Force, while focusing instead on the shipments getting where they belong. Anakin and Luke decide to try one last time to locate Thrinivai. They head down to a Corduro shipping yard and talk to one of the security guards when the Force gives Luke a vision of Thrini's death. Luke anticipates that the Yuzhan Vong will attack Duro very soon, and he tells Han and Leia to focus on evacuating the planet. But first, they must collect Jason. Jaina sneaks in to free her brother while the rest create a distraction. Jaina and Jason flee Baburu and head down to the planet's surface. No sooner do the twins arrive at Gateway when the Vong arrive. They hustle some of the refugees to evacuation ships while others head into the tunnels to hide. But it appears the refugee domes have had their shields taken down, set up by the orbital cities as an invitation for the Vong to attack the planet's surface. With Duro's defenses protecting the orbital cities, the refugees on the surface stand little chance against the Vong attack. Warmaster Savong La lands on the planet and orders his forces to capture as many as possible, to cull the prisoners into two groups, one to work as slave labor, and the other to offer as sacrifices to the gods. Mara and Luke fly up to Baburo to convince Admiral Deriz Woot not to listen to the Warmaster, while Han and Leia lead the refugees on the planet through the mining tunnels. Han and Droma make their way to the hidden hauler ship they hope to use for evacuating the Gateway refugees, while Leia and the twins return to Gateway for a mining laser. They sneak inside Gateway's admin building and witness the Vong rounding up captives in the courtyard. 
lining them up around a huge pit. Janus suggests they use the force to lift a huge ore-smashing droid out of the pit and drop it on the Vong guarding the captives. She'll need her brother's help. But Jason refuses. He can't use the force. Convinced that this is the moment where he shouldn't give in, where he should stand strong as his vision asked. Disgusted with her twin, Jaina turns to Leia, telling her mother to follow her lead. Leia adds her strength as Jaina tries to levitate the droid out of the pit. Success! They crush five of the Vong guards, allowing the captives to scatter. The Solos find the mining laser, but are discovered by the Vong. Leia is captured, and she covers Jaina and Jason as they flee, ordering them to contact Han and Luke. Naminor presents Leia to Savang Long. Leia pleads with the War Master to stop the invasion, to allow them to live together in the galaxy. But he's unmoved. We do not live side by side with impurity, he says. Your civilization is built on abominations. The Vong intend to take all the worlds in the galaxy and extinguish all that do not embrace pain and death. Savang La says Leia herself will soon meet death, along with any Jedi they can find. And then the Vong will push onward to Coruscant. The War Master imprisons Leia in a storage closet, where she tries to tap out a code against a drainage pipe to warn anyone who might be listening. Leia reaches out to Luke through the Force to warn him about the danger the Vong intends for the galaxy. Luke hears Leia, but can't quite get the full message. He reaches out to Jaina, showing her the images he does understand. A pebble. A code. Leia's rough location. Jaina does the rest, finding the building, and uses the tap code to communicate with her mother. Leia orders her daughter to leave and deliver the message however she can. Jaina contacts Mara while she tries to convince Admiral Woot that they've been double-crossed. Hearing Jaina's message, Woot puts plans in motion to get everyone he can to Urdorf as quietly as possible and re-engage the defense forces. Leia is brought back in front of Savang La alongside Randa the Hutt. He forces Leia to watch as refugees are sacrificed in the burning pit. Leia is next on the War Master's list, but not before she would be used as bait to lure out Jason and Jaina. Suddenly, Randa jumps into action, lashing with his tail, while Leia makes a desperate grab for her lightsaber, which is attached to Naminor's belt. They're subdued, and Randa is strangled to death. Leia tries to reach out with the Force to warn her loved ones to stay away. Savang La unleashes two creatures that wrap themselves around Leia's legs, squeezing and slicing into them, her pain screaming out through the Force. Feeling his mother's anguish, Jason springs into action. He rushes through, dispatching several Yuzan Vong guards before exploding into the room to find Leia crumbled on the floor, bleeding. Jason hears a voice telling him to stand firm. And he does. Jason opens himself to the Force, allowing it to fill him again, more powerfully than ever. He raises his arms and creates a Force storm, swirling desks and chairs and cabinets around the room. He flings a desk at Savang La, knocking the War Masker out a window. Nominor flees with Leia's lightsaber as Jaina arrives. The twins gather up their wounded mother, escape through the mining tunnels, and hail their father for a pickup. 
Our heroes try to cover the evacuation, but the carnage is everywhere. Only one of the 20 orbital cities escapes the Vong attack. Han and Jaina escort the giant hauler piloted by Droma as Leia lies in the Millennium Falcon's medbay. The Vong destroy ships and cities at every angle, but Droma's hauler, filled with refugees, lifts away from the planet and makes it to hyperspace. Mara watches as Erdorf, the only orbital city to escape Duro, continues its slow flight into the vastness of space. Sauron La recovers from Jason's attack, but his leg is badly injured. The War Master is seething at being bested by such an unworthy opponent. Maybe he should offer his leg to Yunyamka and ask with the Shapers for a replacement. But that can wait. Now he must send the New Republic a message. Savong La uses the infidel's own barbaric technology and raises Leia's blasphemous lightsaber. The War Master promises that he will let the Core Worlds live if they deliver all the Jedi to the Yuuzhan Vong for sacrifice. And he offers a special prize to the one who can bring him the vile Jason Solo. Time for a break. When we return, Scott and I will talk more about Balance Point. I'm Aaron Motes. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. And if you're a fan who'd like to meet other Legends buffs, you can check out Legends Con this September 9th and 10th in Burbank, California. Legends Con is a fan-run convention focused on celebrating the books, comics, games, and other media from the old Star Wars Expanded Universe. And it's hosted by the Legends Consortium, a fan-run organization that wants to bring together fans to celebrate legends in a positive environment. It will feature vendors, artists, and authors from the old EU, including special guests, Randy Stradley, Matthew Stover, Karina Bechko, Sean Stewart, Barbara Hambly, and Abel G. Pena. LegendsCon is open to all ages and will be held September 9th and 10th, 2023, at the Marriott Convention Center in Burbank, California. Proceeds from the event will be donated to the Peter Mayhew Foundation. Tickets are on sale now through Eventbrite, and you can provide additional support through Kickstarter or coffee.com. For more information on LegendsCon, visit legends-con.com. Check out at legends underscore con on Twitter and Instagram, or at Legends Consortium on Facebook and Tumblr. Once again, that's Legends Con, coming September 9th and 10th in Burbank, California. Welcome back to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. 
I'm Aaron Motes, and today, Scott and I are talking about Balance Point by Kathy Tires, the sixth book in the New Jedi Order series. Well, Scott, uh, this is a heavy book, probably one of the most important in the series. Three huge things happen in this story, and we can talk about them in whatever order you would like. Mara's pregnancy, Han and Leia seeming to have made up, or at least starting to make up, and Jason Solo finally choosing his path in this story. What were your reactions to each of these events, and how do you think they'll impact the series as we move forward? I've got a lot here, man. But first I want to say, I listened to that LegendsCon ad, and I'm interested, man. That sounds fun. I'm just throwing a double ad out there, I guess, for you. Uh, let's start with the solos. and, and not I mean, th- this is an important book. This is a very important book in this series. I, I, I get that impression. And remember, I haven't read them, so I don't know where it's going, but it feels like a tipping point. This is called Balance Point, but it feels like a tipping point a little bit in a few ways. Let's start with the solos. So to me, there's nothing that can bring people together or drive them apart faster than dealing with a crisis. But this family is always in crisis. So they're kind of good at handling it. It kind of, I think it naturally brings them together rather than driving them apart, right? They know the stakes. They've lived through them before. Uh, you know, not exactly the same, but they they get it. And so it brings them together rather than driving them apart. Chewie's death was a unique event, not the kind of crisis that brings anybody together, right? And had a big impact on all of them. Jason's pulling away from the force. Jaina's focus on a new job that sees her away from the family a lot. And Han and Leia switching back into some of their old roles, which you and K2 covered really well in the last episode. All this has changed every single one of them. Well, when you change yourself, it's easier on you than it is on the people around you, right? You're dealing with it. You're thinking about the change. The people around you are just like, what is happening, right? But when the whole family is changing roles and behaving differently, it can be really disruptive. And I think this series has shown that pretty well without you know, being too heavy-handed about it with the solos. So they're all, I think, in this book, for the first time, learning to respect the growth of each other a little bit, what it means for the family and their interpersonal relationships. It's hardest with Leia and Han. They've been apart for so long now. They haven't seen each other. And they're just two very stubborn people with lots of pride. It remains to be seen, to me at least, if this crisis made them come to grips with it and it sticks, or if when things settle... And there's some time, some space, if there's still some pretty gnarly-looking scabs to deal with. But I'm encouraged. I want the solos healed, and I, I liked what I read. I, I will say I agree with almost everything you said there. Yes, Han and Leia kind of revert back to the Han and Leia we know from the original trilogy of movies after Chewie's death. Jason and Jaina are late teens and they've grown up in a galaxy in crisis after crisis. The debates that the twins have and that Anakin has with Jason, those all seem natural to me for people who are growing up. Mm -hmm. And like you said, these things pull the family apart. Eventually, it brings the family back together. The only thing that I would say that I disagree with in your answer is right after Chewie died, 
the way Han treated Anakin. The words he said to Anakin about leaving Chewie, about failing Chewie, in my opinion, he's never really apologized for that up to this point. I know there's one scene two books ago where Anakin gives Han the little knife, yeah. the little multi-tool, but Han, in my opinion, that interaction is inadequate in an apology for from a father to a son who feels guilt-ridden over the death of this loved one. Sure. And I, I think maybe I wasn't clear enough in my answer because I didn't talk about Anakin at all, actually, in my answer, but I kept saying the solos of, as if it was all of them. And it's an interesting part of this book. Anakin's never with any of them. He never talks maybe through the force once or he's with Jason in that room one time, but like he's basically never with the family. And so it's a little weird, to be honest, the rest of the family is kind of dealing with all this stuff and Anakin's just being superstar Anakin. Um, I agree with you. Han has never made this right. I think it was in the last book. Maybe it was two books before where he talks. I think it's inner monologue very sincerely to himself about the first thing I need to do is talk to Anakin. And yet here we are, it's two months later or something. He hasn't done it yet. So I, I'm, I'm with you. I didn't mean to skip over Anakin. That's that's definitely a that's not even scabbed over. That's still bleeding heavily, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, Anakin is a it's a it's a weird side note to the Solo family in this book to me. Mara's pregnant, Scott. <laughs> she is. Uh, she's pregnant, and I've got very little besides fear. I'm afraid. I was afraid for all 22 months. My wife carried pregnancies, and she didn't have a strange, unidentified disease within her. Uh, I don't believe Mara is cured, despite the evidence we kind of see. And again, I haven't read the book, so I could be wrong. Um, but I'm not sure I'm ready for the roller coaster that this pregnancy might be. Hopefully, I'm wrong about all of it, right? I don't, I don't know Mara well, but she seems like a figure of some tragedy. If she loses this child to teach her some moral lesson about the Force in some stupid religiousy guilty way Aaron I'm gonna lose it and I'm gonna throw the book across the room like I did when Le when Ned lost his head so like I hope that's not how this goes but I'm scared well the for the characters in the story for Mara for Luke and for the entire Skywalker slash Solo family they don't know if Mara's cured either no yeah. they're treating this as though it's at least in remission from Vergeer's tears and Mara has yeah. saved the last couple in case it comes back. But I understand for people that have children, it's scary when you learn you're going to have a child. The entire pregnancy is scary. I can't imagine how terrifying it must be if you have the fear of a debilitating disease that goes along with it. I, I mean, my kids are 11 and almost nine now and I'm still scared. Aaron. So <laughs> it's, it's maybe just the kind of person I am, but uh, yeah, I'm, I, you know, I'm still worried. Mara seems like the kind of gritty person that is going to just handle this, but I can also see these books going in a direction that is very, you needed to learn that life is fragile and you can't overpower every situation because she does do that. She's like, I'm just going to overcome it. I'm just going to be better than this disease. And like, that's how she kind of treats things. And it would be 
heartbreaking to me if that's what happened, but we shouldn't spend a bunch of time on, on what ifs, probably. So the third major thing in the book, Jason makes two choices in this story. The first choice is to completely pull back from using the force. Mm -hmm. And then later, when he is faced with the sight of his mother wounded on the ground, makes the choice to fully embrace the force again. Mm -hmm. What did you think of those two choices? So I hinted with my Mount Rushmore answer that Jason is, is probably my favorite kind of new character. I'm, I'm fascinated by him. Um, you know, it would be easy to t- just take the Jedi power he has and use it without deeper connection to understanding the Force. And to be honest, I feel like this is maybe a weakness of Star Wars in general. It's, it's kind of how they use the Force, like there's a dark side and a light side, and so there's no removal of the Force. The Force doesn't abandon you if you use it inappropriately over time, right? So really, it's like the honor system, right? Palpatine and Vader misuse the Force all the time for, for bad reasons. So why be thoughtful about it? We'll get into that maybe a little bit later. But I love Jason's story. It's it's my favorite part of this book for sure. It's probably my favorite running part of the whole series. He, he says this thing at the end. He says, by giving himself obedient with no reservation, he became a walking, breathing, living sacrifice. And I can't say it's really clear to me yet what that path really means to him. To Jason, it seems clear, and that's good. I'm glad for him. But I'm it's not clear to me. What does it mean? Does that just mean no pompous attitude to others? Is it... Is this like, do, do other people need to choose to hit rock bottom? Because he's a much better steward of the force than everybody else already. He, because he's thinking about it, you know that. You know he's a more responsible user just because he's so worried about how he's using it. Most people just use it willy-nilly however they want when they get it, right? So what does this mean for his path? Does it mean he's going to be, it's going to be nothing than everything? No in between? It's a hard road to walk. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really interested to see where it goes. And the last word in that passage, sacrifice, that's a pretty loaded word. But it's preceded by the word living, a living sacrifice, which implies that he is almost like a walking prophet, right? He's sacrificing his own potential and living with it, right, as a gift to the force. It's a, it's a weird thing. That's what I mean by it's not clear to me. It's, it's really not clear exactly what that means for him. Is it like a wake up in the morning, what do I do today kind of thing? What did you think of the scene where Jason tells his Uncle Luke about his decision to not use the Force as much, and then Luke telling him, no, there's no halfway. You're either going to be a Jedi or you cannot use the Force at all. It's it's my favorite scene in the whole book. So I, I'm a big I'm a big character driven guy. Uh, Aaron, you've listened to my podcast. I'm all about characters driving stories, right? So space battles are nice, lightsabers are very cool. But I'm way more interested in the character driven story. And and this conversation felt like home to me. And this chapter, I was like, oh, I'm back. Here we go. Let's dive into these feelings. Uh, I'm an atheist myself, uh, but I'd say that it's partially because I believe similarly to how Luke does. You can't go halfway with faith. You're all in or you're not. 
And I think this is true on a personal level with whatever deity you listeners out there choose to worship, you know, while you don the mortal coil, it, it's it's even more true with the force, though, because you have so much more power over other people with it. Most personal faith is personal. With the force, you have all this power to influence other lives. I'm uh, I'm reminded of, of Hamlet uh, when you when I read this question. My words fly up. My thoughts remain below. Words without thoughts never to heaven go. If your words aren't mindful and said in earnest, they shouldn't get the direct line to heaven to be answered by a deity. They shouldn't. You're not really even focused on them. You're not giving everything to them. If you're using the force without complete faith in ways that you are unsure about to impact the lives of others without their control, it's a lot of power to misuse. And the force shouldn't, it should, it shouldn't answer your questions if you're using it without complete faith. You know, and we've seen that it won't abandon you, but Luke's pleased to not use it without faith. It makes total sense to me. Exactly. And the other thing in the context of the Star Wars universe, if you are not fully committed on how you use the force, there's the temptation that you're going to use it incorrectly. And that could be a slippery slope to the dark side. And Luke knows the twins and Anakin are really powerful in the force. You know, he can't lose. Well, he can't lose anyone, but specifically he can't lose a family member, another family member to the dark side of the force. Is it uh, in legends? Is it a big thing? Like the, the genetic component of like, you're susceptible to the dark side because of your, because of your family. I wouldn't say that Uh, in legends. There is definitely your aptitude to use the force there is kind of a correlation to uh, your genetics. You know, a lot of people that are strong in the force inherit the force from their parents. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think there's anything specific that says because you are descendant of Anakin Skywalker that Mm -hmm. you are more susceptible to the dark side of the force. Now, Anakin Solo... Anakin Skywalker's grandson, he constantly worries about this in right. his head. And I've heard that. I mean, let's face it, I don't think Han and Leia did him any favors by naming him after <laughs> Anakin Skywalker. But It's a badge to wear. It is, and he worries about that a lot. But I don't think it really makes you more or less susceptible to the dark side. I want to say one more one more thing about Luke real quick. Sure. Because, and it harkens back a little bit to something I said earlier, but what it takes for Luke to suggest this path to, to Jason, to me, is really interesting because Luke, in his heart of hearts, knows that Jason is a better steward of the Force than Kip Duran and than Verth Skidder was. He knows that Jason has the mentality and the philosophy to do this the right way. He thinks Jason is on the right track. He's further toward the answer than basically anybody else, I think, Luke Luke believes, right? He's just got to get that last mile. So to tell somebody with so much potential to give it up and stop using it, that takes immense care for your apprentice. For Well, used to be apprentice, right? For someone that, you, that you're trying to develop. So yeah, you can still call him the apprentice. You can still call him his apprentice. I mean, he, okay. he's not a full Jedi Knight yet. Okay. So. 
One thing I will say about this story. One of the biggest problems in Legends, as much as I love the Legends stories, Do is you? how Luke is written. Mm. I don't think many of the authors really get Luke Skywalker. But I will say in this story, I think Kathy Tires does a really good job of yeah. getting Luke Skywalker. His a little bit of naivete, his warmth. Mm. You know, Luke is a yeah. warm character, Very. I think. Yeah. Luke is introspective. Mm-hmm. Luke cares about everyone and he tries to see the good in everyone. He's not yeah. a superhero. I think that's one problem that other Legends books have is all of a sudden Luke comes in and saves the day. It's it's a note I had actually in, in some of the notes I was taking is that I really respect the actually the way this whole series really there's only been a few examples where he really asserts himself and kind of takes control and you feel like it's kind of Neo in the Matrix kind of situation. But they could. It feels like they could at any point just use him that way. And I feel like this series has done a pretty good job of keeping him to be this master of of care and of concern and of am I doing the right thing and personal introspection. They've done a really good job with him, I think. Um, and you're right, I'd say Kathy better maybe than the others, but I think the series as a whole so far at least it's done a pretty good job. Yeah. It would and- be very tempting to just be like, and he rode on on a, ho- a white horse with his lightsaber. Yeah, and I mean, we still see Luke do some of these things. We still do. Yeah. I mean, we don't want Luke not to be the yeah. Luke Skywalker that we know, but he's now more mature. And I think in the scene that we've been talking about, that's one of my favorite Luke scenes in all mm. of Legends. That yeah. you can tell he is disappointed he allows Jason to make his own decisions. He gives him advice, yep. but he allows Jason to make his own decision. And it's a it's a theme for Luke in this book, too. There's a, a scene, we, I don't think we, we address it too much in the summary, but there's a scene where he's talking about Jedi in general and their actions and controlling them. He's talking to the New Republic Council, uh, New, Revol- New Republic Advisory Council. Um, and he kind of says, Jedi make their own decisions. I don't control them. And I think that's probably been a hard thing for him to just embrace, that he can't control this. And it really is amazing, considering when these books were published between 99 and 2002. 2002 is when Attack of the Clones came out. Revenge of the Sith came out in 2005. So the authors in this story, they they don't know what is going to happen in those prequel films when they come out. And we talk sometimes about the failure of the Jedi council with their stodgy rules and trying to maintain some sort of control and order over the Jedi. And in these first six books, whenever anyone's talked about reforming the Jedi council, you're exactly right. You see Luke saying, I don't think that's the right way. I don't think it's my job to tell Jedi how they are supposed to act. Yeah, it's a hard thing for the advisory council and people like them, politicians, to understand, but imagine trying to dictate the living gospel to people as they feel it. It's like they feel it in their own way. How? What right do you have to control it? 
it's uh it's a it's an interesting thing to grapple with for sure because there's so much power and so many expectations but i mean i do disagree a little bit with luke i think that there can be some sort of jedi sort of advisory council mm. i just don't think there need to be some of the strictures and stone rules that we saw from the jedi in the prequel films i'd say rules are bad guiding principles that lead jedi to the correct rules for themselves are good that's a good way to say it so jaina in the first five books the debate over the force has mostly been anakin and jason anakin. Yeah. With Kip Duran thrown in there a little bit. Mm-hmm. In this book, now Jaina, of course, she gets injured in combat, so she's already depressed. She's already a little angry and frustrated. And when Jason tells her that he's decided to stop using the Force, he does. she does not like that at all. I personally think that's the author, Kathy Tyers, giving voice to the readers who want Jason to wake up and to stop wasting his potential and start living up to his responsibilities of being a Jedi. What do you think of that opinion? Well, I hope not. And, and let me, let me, let me start with, um, there are lots of ways to art. I am not here to tell anyone the right or wrong way to art. Uh, certainly commission based art is a huge thing. Very important, I'm wearing a piece, essentially, from our friend Senrixian. Okay, commission-based art is a huge deal. And I don't mean to I don't mean to knock that down at all. Uh, I am a fourth-rate actor at times, Aaron. I've done some acting in my day. Nothing anyone would have seen, unless you happen to live in the Salt Lake Valley, and then even then probably not. Um, but even being a fourth-rate or a third-rate actor, not a professional writer like Kathy. I earnestly hope that artists don't sacrifice their characters and message for their audience. This is a controversial view that several of my second and third rate actor friends disagree with, but if you're thinking about your audience when you are making art, in my opinion, you're doing it a little backwards. Art has to be about the art and not about the audience, or it becomes disingenuous and insincere, and then you'll lose the audience anyway. That, that sounds like a negative response to your question, but it isn't because I think what Kathy's done is that she's actually honed in on, you know, the, the fact that the reader feels this way is a good indication that so far Jason has been written in a complicated way. The reader it feels very complicated about this. They want to like Jason. They've read Jason in other books. They want to like him. But dang it, man, help. Your sister just got blinded and almost dead. Why aren't you helping? So I understand the reader feels that way, but hopefully, and I believe, that Jaina's motivation and Jason struggling fits their own arcs. The relationship that Jaina has with Jason and her own story and develop, development and how it's impacted by that choice is what's making her come at Jason. She's been seeing Jason withdrawn, withdrawn, withdrawn. She's so much potential in him and eventually blows up at her twin, who she has this deep connection with, because that's what her character would do, right? Not to soothe the audience, but because that's what Jaina is really feeling. And I believe that the way this this uh, series has been written. So what they've done works for me. I hope they don't go out of their way to be like, oh, let's throw the audience a bone. Because I don't I don't love that in art. But I understand, I think I understand what you mean. I'm just saying that's the way I interpret it. I'm not saying that that's the way Kathy Tyers intended it. 
I interpret it as Jaina giving voice to readers like me who have seen Jason grow up to this point. Mm -hmm. They're looking out over a pit of refugees about to be sacrificed. Jaina asks her brother, help me lift this thing and free these people. And he says, no, I can't use the force right now. I mean, so so that would disgust her. She would be disgusted with her brother. So you, so not to like fight, but you're agreeing with me. Sure. It's not a, it's not about what you think, Aaron. This is how Jaina would really feel. Exactly. And I'm glad as a reader that you relate to that, but this is how Jaina feels and it's real. Right. If we write characters that people really agree with and can glom onto with, with how they feel, we've done our jobs as artists. So I guess I'd say it worked. I hope it wasn't her intention necessarily, but that the readers align with Jaina's view because Jaina is also a sympathetic character. So it worked for me, but not in the way that I thought it worked for me. <laughs> it worked for you how you thought it worked for you. <laughs> I just hope that's not what her intention was. So in the first five books of the series, we're all over the galaxy in this invasion. The Vong, they come into the galaxy. This has only been a year since they emerged into the Outer Rim. They've gone through the Mid-Rim. They've gone into the Inner Rim. And now they're right on the cusp of the Core Worlds. So the first five books, it's fast. This book essentially is one setting. I know we're at Coruscant a little bit at the very beginning. But on this book, it's almost entirely on Duro. Did you like that change of pace in this story? Yeah, I liked it. So I like my Star Wars stories a little more, well, my stories in general a little more contained perhaps and be, you know, about characters and things. But I remember I remember even in Rogue One, it's like you jumped like seven or eight different planets in the first 15 minutes. It's like, where am I? Like, it's very fast. I like this. I like the fact that most of the action happens, happens on Doro. Um, you know, they didn't really lose much there are still relationships and agreements and backdoorsy conversations happening with Coruscant you still get the sense that the story is reaching out to other places so you don't feel like it's super isolated it's still connected to a greater story but it is a little bit more focused in the storytelling and I like that for me I like fast-paced action-based stories but for the important things that happen Mm -hmm in this story i think it's a nice it's like a breather it's like you're Mm. taking a breath so that you can absorb the three really important things that we discussed earlier uh in this conversation that if you were still hopping around to different places and having different battles i think maybe that would lose a bit of the importance of the conversations that the characters were having in these uh on duro so what you're saying is it's not something you would normally prefer, but for what this story was, they made a really good choice. Sure. As much as I like the fast paced adventures at times, you do have to take a breather or, yeah. you know, things just get too hectic after a while. And so maybe we have a breather here and then going forward for the next three or four books, all of a sudden it's the war again. You know what I mean? 
I know what you mean. But, and then you take another but, breath. But the idea that this is a breather is a, a little bit of a stretch to me too because they just took a core world for the first time, so it doesn't feel like much of a breather. Yeah, you're right. You're right about that. Uh, speaking of the Vong, what'd you think of uh, the War Master, Savong Law? Well, this is a family show, Aaron. Uh, okay. So I'll, can, I'll can, keep... can you summarize what you think <laughs> of Savong Law and not use too many four-letter words? Jerk and face are two four-letter words. I'll use that. He's a jerk face. Uh, they all are. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to be like too negative about it, but the Vong, to me, are by far the weakest and least entertaining part about this series. I haven't found one I cared about yet or really thought was that interesting. An interesting villain like Vader can carry an entire story. They can be the focus of the story. You did a, a whole panel at a convention we went to about how great villains are. They can be the focus. The Vong are powerful and cunning. They're good strategists of war, but I don't find anything really interesting about them so far. They provide the obvious war conflict, but the meaty villain roles in this series, the ones I care about, belong to the New Republic Advisory Council that are subverting everything good about the New Republic. I love Borskvalia. I love yeah, Borskvalia. Love yeah, him. He's, he's great. He's, you know, a cigar-smoking, you know, whiskey-drinking villain. You could see him in Tammany Hall, Hall back in uh, New York City in the late absolutely. 1800s. How, how many votes we got to make up? Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Uh, Kip Duran is the other villain to me. And I know he's not a villain. I know a lot of people that know the series will say, like, you're crazy. He's not a villain. Remember, I've only read these books. He's a villain to me because he's totally rejecting what I think is the right philosophy about the Jedi. And these are the conflicts that matter to the soul of the galaxy to me more than, you know, what's going to happen with the monster of the week. We do see one interesting difference in law, though, at the very end. He consents to use technology for the betterment of his cause, which we haven't seen that before. It's a slippery slope. It's similar to Jason using force without faith, right? It's like, well, if you're not all in on the technology's bad thing, then what exactly are you? And so that was interesting to me. That was maybe the first time I was like, hmm, okay, okay, there's something here that's different. I know where the story goes. Yeah. Because this is either the third or fourth time I'm reading. I'm, I think it's the fourth time that I'm reading this story. We get more from the Yuzhan Vong going forward. Good. You talk but... about character development. To this point, the Yuzhan Vong are simply the boogeymen. But bit. we get more from them going forward. And like I tell people, in all of Legends, one of my absolute favorite characters is Naminor. And I hope you and the rest of the crew that are reading this along with me get the appreciation for Nam Anor that I get as, as yeah, we go ahead. I should clarify, like you can see there, I haven't been that impressed yet, but I can see they're trying to do something different with him than they're doing with the others. It's clear that he's different in a way. I'm just, I just haven't been impressed yet. Scott, why do you think Coruscant and the other core worlds still have their heads in the sand when it comes to the Yuzhan Vong? Because they're pressing closer and closer. Like you said, we're now right on the corner of the core at Duro. Yeah. Yeah. I like maps. And that Duro's right inside that line. 
of the core worlds. Uh, I thought a lot about this over the last five books, you know, um, and it makes sense. The first book, they're like, ah, it's way out there and we don't know it's real and, and all those things. But remember, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Legends noob, so I'm trying to reconcile what I'm reading here with logic and trying to fill in the blanks. So it seems like a few things. The core worlds are elitist. They care less about the more isolated worlds. No one seems surprised by this behavior, so I can just say that it seems like this is just the way the world, the galaxy, is, right? It seems this is even a theme present in the films a little bit, right? It's not super unique to Legends. They care less about the distant, you know, outer rim worlds. They also care about their own worlds. This is a new leadership group in the New Republic that's very diverse, and they all have their own interests, right? And so like, ah, oh, well, I am worried about that world that just got taken, but mine is three worlds away. I'm more focused on that right now. And so they don't all, there's not one event that has unified them where the fear has ratcheted up at the same time for each of them. Their fear is on different scales as their worlds get approached. And so I think, you know, as their own planet's demise gets closer, that's when their fear gets ratcheted up. And so if there isn't one major event where they're all feeding off of each other, it's it's different. And then there's there's this monster of the week thing is the last thing. And I kind of just assume, kind of like the solo is always facing controversy, I kind of just assume stuff is always falling apart in this universe in Legends. It's like, well, there's always another big threat. You told me about one last week. There was this disease that was going to kill all of us, and then nothing happened. You fixed it, and it was fine. So, like, I get the sense that, like, they just always are told it's dangerous, and so they don't always react right when they should. You know, the old, this is the most important election in history thing. Like, we all we hear that every election. This is the most important election in history. Well, the Yuuzhan Vong may be the most dangerous thing they've ever seen, but they hear that every year about something. Yeah, and, and I I also think there's a certain level of arrogance that will be able to negotiate some sort of armistice at some point. But going back to book three, I think it was, you would think that Elagos's death and Borskvela being so regionally close to that happening, right, that, that that would have flipped a switch of some kind, like, maybe there is no negotiation. Yeah, the Ka'amase are pacifists. They tortured and killed a pacifist, set his corpse in such a way as, as some sort of presentation with jewels and this, that, and the other, and then sent it back to him. Say, hey, yeah, yeah it, it, here's your negotiator. This is what we think of what you guys are offering. So as much as we praised Borsk for being a great, you know, character, pretty dense in that case, I would say. Feels like he missed a pretty big sign for the galaxy on that one. Yes, that he did. Leia's hair. I mean, come on. <laughs> they shaved Leia's head. It actually, well, I guess she submitted to it. She shaved it herself. They shaved Leia's hair. Yeah. Everyone remembers Leia's hair in Endor, you know, flowing in the Ewok oh, village. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful. Down almost to her knees. Almost like, to her knees. Oh, it's so good. It's uh, it's almost a character in and of itself. Uh, you know, you got the buns, you got the there's it, it's it's fantastic, and it's kind of cool how much the authors know we care to make this some sort of thematic beat. Like how many how many characters or books you know they're like, oh yeah, they're gonna have to cut their hair, and it's like an emotional trauma for the reader. But, like I said, she's uh, got the buns and a new hope. 
She's got the coils in Cloud City. Yep, and... Uh, She's got the great braids in Hoth. Yes. And there's certainly something going on in the bikini uh, at Jabba's Palace as well. Yeah, it's kind of put all up at mm-hmm. in the top and everything with, yeah. with a little bun up there too. And I, I really wondered, I guess... I mean, my question to you really was like, if this will result in actual confidence issues or her ability to sway and talk to people. This is part of her mystique. It's part of her identity. And I know it sounds stupid because appearances are just appearances, but it's kind of a big part of her. And I wonder if it has a further impact in the story or whether it's just a nice symbolic gesture from her to be, you know, part of the refugee crew. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine if we saw that on screen? Could you imagine at some point if we saw Leia having her head shaved on screen? I mean, that would yeah. be emotional for the audience just to see her having her hair cut off. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the context a little bit, but yes, for sure it would be. Yeah. Anything else in this book that we haven't talked about in the discussion that you either really liked or something that didn't work for you? Well, I don't want to be negative. So I want to just reaffirm that I really, I'm really enjoying this. And well, I really no, if something didn't work for you, it didn't work for you. That's fine. Well, it's something we've you guys have covered a little bit before. I just wanted to add my couple cents because I didn't get to cover the Chewy Death book, you know, or the books in between. And I just wanted to weigh in real quick on the Chewy Droma thing. Droma's fine. He's kind of funny. He's resourceful. He's cool. I, I actually, I like him fine. No, spe- no beef specifically with Droma. I don't feel like Han, the character, is ready for a Chewy replacement. And again, remember, I know I've said it a lot of times, I don't know what's coming. I feel like the previous six books have shown us that he's not really ready to move on from that. And I really hope they can focus on Han healing with Leia. Let her be his co-pilot for a while. A relationship he trusts, someone he loves to really heal with, rather than just filling Chewie's seat with somebody new, regardless of how well the authors have done bringing us drama. And they've done a good job. I like them. But I'm not, I'm not ready, and there's no way I believe Han is ready. Well, before we wrap up, I would like to share an email that we got from a listener, Isabel, who was listening to the discussion that Scott, your partner, Matt, and I had during our episode on Dark Tide Ruin by Michael A. Stackpole. Matt and I have always been a little confused as to why Corin Horn was willing to allow the New Republic and Chief of State Borskphalia to blame him over the destruction of Ithor when we think it would have been much easier to simply blame the Yuzhan Vong. And Isabel has an explanation. Scott, would you please read Isabel's email? I will, I will indeed, from Isabel. As someone who was brought into the EU by Stackpole, specifically I Jedi, I've always had a soft spot for his contributions to the galaxy far, far away. I wanted to offer my thoughts on why Corrin took the blame for the events of Dark Tide Ruin and why no one else stood up for him. First, Borsk Fela never liked Corrin, or any of the rogues, or Jedi, and to Borsk, Ethor was the perfect opportunity to discredit his adversaries. We see political figures do this in our world. Why should the galaxy far, far away be any different? Fair point. Second, there's the question of the Jedi's status in the New Republic. How do they keep the lights and lightsabers on? The resources must come from somewhere, and I doubt either public or private donors would want to be associated with a Jedi Order that harbors the man who killed Ithor. Third, 
Korn himself said he walked too close to the dark side during his duel with Shadow Shai. Elagos' death hit Korn badly. He blamed himself for what happened, unjustifiably but believably to me. And I think he saw this as a chance to take a breather and clear his mind. There's a scene with him talking to Elagos' bones that still hits my gut to this day in which he says as much. He should have said something like that to the others, but I can understand him not wanting to share something so personal. Thank you very much for the email, Isabel. I understand Corrin being willing to shoulder the blame to take the onus off the Jedi. I understand Borskphalia wanting to hurt Corrin, the Jedi Order, and Rogue Squadron. As you said, he's a typical slimy politician. It's one of the reasons I've always wanted to see Borsk make the jump into canon. I think he'd be a tremendous foil to Leia and Mon Mothma during the time right after the fall of the Empire when they're trying to form the New Republic government. My one issue with the decision, Isabel, continues to be Luke agreeing to go along with it. That just seems out of character to me. But... We get Jason's astonishment and disgust at his uncle allowing Corrin to shoulder the blame. So maybe that's the way Stackpole intended it to feel. Out of character for Luke. And the others in the story recognizing that as well. Scott, do you have any thoughts on Isabel's email? Of course I have thoughts. Great, great email, Isabel. I liked it. Um... As I said, character-driven, is it's, it's the theme for me. Do characters' decisions make sense given the narrative arcs we've seen? I only know Korn for the six books so far, right? It's all I got. So, and he was only really in three of them, I think. <clears throat> but accepting the blame seems like a move he would be totally okay with, consistent with his character from what I've seen. It also seems like something Luke would not allow or be okay with. But we see in this book that Luke is very much about each Jedi making their own path and their own decisions. Jason, though, I would think, might have problems with Corrin's actions to begin with. It's surprising to me that Jason is so upset with this. Horn's decision is an offensive effort. Offering the duel to begin with is a bit offensive, right? That stumbles really close to revenge, which Corrin even admits himself, and which philosophical Jason should really be not okay with. He was in defense of the planet, yes, but revenge, that's the dark side. And so I'm surprised Jason is so okay with it. Uh, and Luke, maybe he's just trying to let him walk his own path. He respects Corrin a lot. Thank you again for the email, Isabel. If you or any of the listeners have a comment about something that we've discussed on the show, or if you have a question, you can send me an email at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or a tweet at legendslounge1. Or you can record a short audio file and email it in. Just remember to record it in MP3 or MP4 format. And don't forget to send in your favorite Star Wars character groupings. I'm down to only a few in my inbox. Starfighter squadrons, ground force platoons, heist squads. Or maybe you'd like to be like Jeremiah and send in your Star Wars Mount Rushmores. I'd love to read them. Scott, thank you very much for joining me today. Did you enjoy yourself? (laughs) Yeah, I had a great time. I was nervous a little bit. You know, this isn't a universe I'm super familiar with, but I had so much fun, and I, I can't wait to do the next one. And uh, I hope I hope I wasn't too hard on the ears, everybody. 
If listeners would like to hear more from you or if they would like to contact you, how can they do that? Well, I alluded before my, my buddy Matt and I wax philosophic on an awesome fantasy series at this point called The Kingkiller Chronicle by Patrick Rothfuss. We have a back catalog covering A Song of Ice and Fire. You can check us out at scaddy, that's S-C-A-D-D-Y dot podbean dot com. Or you can always get more information from us on Twitter. We're a reasonable follow, at Davos Fingers. Um, yeah, I'd love to see you guys come by. Coming up on the next episode, Jay will be back. And we'll be talking about Edge of Victory 1, Conquest by Greg Keyes. You can look forward to that episode coming up on July 7th. Thank you so much for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. I'm Aaron Motes. May the Force be with you. And remember, there's always a bit of truth in Legends. <laughs>